Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Nowadays, Apple is renowned for its thin, light, portable devices. But prior to the runaway success of the iPad and the MacBook Air, the one-inch-thick titanium PowerBook G4, or even the original seven-pound PowerBooks, there was abject failure. It was called the Macintosh Portable circa 1989. If you look up the specifications, you'll see it weighed 16 pounds, which sounds unbelievable these days. I can vouch for the specifications because I found a Mac Portable in a closet at a previous job. If I were to plop it on a desk in front of you, the first thing you would notice is that it's briefcase-sized. I don't mean that it would fit inside a briefcase. It is the size and weight of a small, heavily loaded briefcase. Press against the front bezel, and a large, sturdy carrying handle pops out. The designers thoughtfully included this touch because the portable weighs as much as a small child. A quote from Jim Carlton's Apple history book, West of Eden, A telling moment came at an Apple employee gathering. A woman came up on stage to claim the Macintosh portable she had won in a company raffle. She almost dropped it because it was too heavy, recalls Paul Mercer. Even Jean-Louis Gasset, who oversaw engineering on the portable, feels it was a failure. Years later, while speaking about B Incorporated, he said, I offered to give a $200 trade-in for anybody who brought in a Macintosh portable in exchange for a B-Box. I wanted to destroy all evidence. A short excerpt from Jean-Louis Gasset's introduction event for The Beast. Um, when we set out to design the Macintosh portable, we had three sets of challenges in mind. Portability, consistency, and battery paranoia. <laughs> and we wanted absolutely no compromise in dealing with uh, these uh, challenges. Everything you do on a desktop machine, we wanted you to be able to do on a portable Macintosh. Not just a little bit of note-taking and, and spreadsheet work. Everything you do on the desktop. No subset of applications, no Mac Junior, no compromise. <laughs> Macworld Magazine, March 1990. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. The Not-So-Great Compromise. The Macintosh Portable is not the best, just the most bearable. The Macintosh Portable is, in my opinion, the least successful computer that Apple has shipped since pre-Macintosh days. For all the baloney we've been fed about its being a no-compromise machine, it is full of compromises. Its size is a compromise. Its weight is a compromise. Its processor is a compromise. Its scheme for memory additions is a compromise and its lack of a backlit screen is a compromise. The one place where it does not compromise is in what we can call its Macintoshness. Rather gloriously, it behaves just like your Mac at home. But this does not begin to compensate for its glaring shortcomings. There are plenty of bones to pick with this computer. Turkeys are loaded with bones but most of them organically stem from the portable's design philosophy. There are two ways to go when designing a portable computer. You can assume that people will use it on the run, 
like all those apocryphal executives spreadsheeting away in business class, in which case, your goals are to try to squeeze out the most from your batteries, and to make the thing small enough so people can whip it out of a briefcase on a moment's notice. Or, you can target it to people who want to move the computer easily from one place to another, but will actually use it in places where electrical plugs are within reach. Once you're socked in to the nation's electrical umbilical, you needn't worry about squeezing every last drop of power from the batteries, and you don't have to design low-power custom components that drive the cost up. Assault and Battery Apple chose the former path and obviously spent oodles of time and money devising clever ways to conserve power. The circuitry is low-power CMOS, complementary metal oxide semiconductor, the hard drive keeps shutting itself off, and the RAM chips are incredibly costly static versions. The happy result is that users trekking into the Mojave Desert, or the few other places in this country where a power outlet is not within a dozen feet, can use Wings, Full Right Professional, and Fourth Dimension for as much as eight hours, according to Apple, before breaking camp to recharge the batteries. Unhappily, Apple did not fulfill the second and most important requirement of battery-powered machines, size. In order to do your computing in remote locations, you want a machine light enough to accompany you on a whim and compact enough to use in those locations considerably bigger than a bread box, and weighing in at a satanic 16 pounds, the portable is too big and too heavy. Its battery, for heaven's sake, is lead-acid-based, practically a car battery. Its avoirdupois makes it impractical for desert treks. Its size overwhelms the average beach bag, and its bulk makes it too awkward for comfortable airplane use. I figure its best airplane function is as a deadly weapon dropped from a bomb hatch. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what Apple did to maximize battery use, because the portable is too much of a monster to be used anywhere else than inside, on a desk or a table, where it's easy to plug into the wall. Once you do plug it into the wall, you begin paying a performance price for all those little battery-saving tricks that Apple misguidedly stuffed into the portable. Remember I mentioned an ensemble of classic Macintosh software applications one might install on the portable's hard drive? Well, Wings, Fullwright, and Fourth Dimension are best used on state-of-the-art Macintoshes with more powerful processors than the 68000 found on the Mac Plus or standard SE. The portable uses a low-power CMOS 68000 that runs twice as fast as the chip on the SE, but slower than the SE30 or the 2CX. Apple's excuse is that the mighty 68030 chip isn't available in a CMOS version. Since extra RAM must also be purchased in extravagantly priced static versions, one extra megabyte of memory will cost you well over a thousand bucks. And right now, 2 megabytes of memory is the most you can carry, not enough for power computing. So forget about System 7.0. In some respects, Apple's most expensive computer, this baby costs around $6,500, is its wimpiest. Let me give another example, the hard disk. Apple has arranged it so that if the hard disk isn't accessed for a while, it shuts itself off 
When you invoke an event that requires accessing the hard disk, it turns itself back on, and you lose a few seconds while things get going. In this mode, the Macintosh Portable is like Ronald Reagan at a cabinet meeting, dozing off every few minutes, and awakening with a start when addressed directly. Most people will find this feature annoying and take the trouble to turn it off via the control panel because they'll be using the portable plugged into the wall. And then there is the display, an active matrix LCD, superior to a standard LCD, but not superior to a backlit screen, which allows for best contrast and does not require a strong separate light source to reflect off the panel. Why isn't the screen backlit? Battery conservation. Of course, when you're plugged into the wall, you don't care about energy conservation, but you suffer from the compromise. Now certainly there are times, one might argue, that all this conservation might be essential. What about the recent earthquake in San Francisco, for instance, when the newspapers, stung by the power outage, tried to put out their next-day editions with Macintosh technology? Well, as it happened, I dropped into the San Francisco Examiner a few hours after the Earth moved and indeed found portables in evidence in the darkened newsroom. But they were MS-DOS portables with backlit screens. The reflective LCD Apple portables would have been useless. On the road Hey, I tried to use the portable on the road. I even took it to a public seminar, intending to use it to take notes. At first, things seemed promising. People who hadn't seen the computer before crowded around, admiring the distinctive Mac desktop on an LCD screen. Then the meeting started, and I had a few problems. The noise from the standard Macintosh keyboard made my typing rather distinctive, and the liberal use of beeps, common to Mac applications, drew some critical stares. I sheepishly used the control panel to turn off the sound. That done, everything went swimmingly for a while. I was having a great time using the familiar Microsoft Word to take notes on the fly, editing them and adding thoughts as some of the speeches from the podium hit dull spots. I was getting increasingly fond of the nifty trackball, but after ten minutes or so, my legs, which had been propping up the machine, began to feel constricted, and my arms got tired typing from an awkward elbows askew position because the keyboard was up against my belt buckle. Otherwise, the Macintosh portable would have slid ingloriously to the floor. I tried another position, crossing my right ankle over my left leg for a new ad hoc desktop. It took only five minutes for the weight to bother me. After about twenty minutes of shifting positions, crossing and recrossing my legs, and readjusting the computer on my lap, I put the beast back into the padded carrying case that Apple generously provides portable users. It was back to pen and steno pad. If not the portable, what? I hope I have made it clear that Macintosh users who need something more portable than their current models might not find the portable the godsend that Apple has promoted it to be. But what are the alternatives? After returning the demo portable to Apple, my one regret at not using it longer is that by lugging it around I would have had a chance to hulk up a la Schwarzenegger, I explored the other paths to portable computing available to Macintosh users. 
My previous solution to the problem, the one I'd used while waiting for Apple to ship a real portable, was a cheap Radio Shack Model 100. I used it to record notes while traveling and to jot down things when doing library research. It had no disk drive of any sort, but I could use the built-in modem to send back files at the end of the day. Or I'd wait until I got home and use my ImageWriter cable to get files directly into the Mac. The word processor was barely more than a line editor, but the screen was microscopic and barely readable. But the Model 100 did the job. A snazzier version of this style of laptoping is available with the Sinclair, which has more memory and silent keys. I figured that a better alternative to this minimal degree of computational power would be found with some of the hot MS-DOS laptops that have come out in the past year or two. These seem to be universally lower cost and more compact than the portable. Why not use them on the road and later transfer data back to the Mac with software designed for that purpose? Certainly, the inconvenience of using the other style of computing couldn't overwhelm the advantages in price and portability you'd get by using something from Toshiba, Compaq, or NEC. Gimme a light. I decided to test the latter. When I got the NEC Ultralight out of the box, my first thought was, why couldn't Apple have used this as its model? The Ultralight is barely larger than a piece of business stationery and not more than an inch thick. It weighs all of four and a quarter pounds, and when you lift the cover, you get a full-size keyboard and a legible backlit display about the size of a Macintosh SE's screen. There are no disk drives, but there is a 1 or 2 megabyte internal silicon drive that acts as a virtual hard disk. You can also purchase credit card size silicon disks to store information or load applications. There's a built-in 2400 baud modem too, and NEC includes a program called LapLink, but you'll want the Mac version that allows your ultralight to convert its files directly to your Mac software programs. Its cost is bearable. I've seen it advertised for well under $2,000. What's the main compromise? Battery use. The ultralight gives you only two hours on a full charge, and if you don't recharge the computer at least every week, you can lose the internal data. By contrast, the Macintosh portable worries like a Jewish mother over those things and is full of warnings and fail-safe systems. Social Justice Outrage Alert in the following month's Macworld, an angry reader accused Stephen Levy of making anti-Semitic comments. As it turns out, Stephen Levy is Jewish. So don't write in. Still, this is a compromise one can live with. Unfortunately, I quickly discovered something I couldn't live with. MS-DOS itself. After five years of Macintosh computing, I could not bring myself to deal with balancing four kinds of disk drives named after letters or typing arcane codes to copy files. Just setting up the system was torture. I felt like a bureaucrat in that Kafkaesque movie Brazil. Then I popped in the ROM card for a word processor named Xyrite and almost had a coronary. Yes, it's a full-featured word processor, but to someone schooled in MacWrite, Microsoft Word, and Nysys, the very idea of moving the cursor to define the beginning and end of text blocks seemed like slow death. This issue is no small one. 
The main reason I use Macintosh is that I thrive on the environment. It treats me like a human being. The ultralight is a magnificent piece of machinery, much more sensibly conceived than the Macintosh Portable, but it uses MS-DOS, and I don't want to live there. However, I realize that there are plenty of Macintosh users who, for professional reasons, must maintain a familiarity with the style of computing used by the vast majority of personal computer users, and they would indeed find the ultralight, or any other number of MS-DOS laptops, a superior alternative to the portable. How about the non-Apple portables that run like Macintoshes? I was excited to see a prototype of something called the Wallaby last August at the Macworld Expo. But at press time, it wasn't available, so I cannot yet recommend it. Then there is the Colby Systems WalkMac. Though somewhat more compact than the portable, it's nearly as expensive and not as cleverly designed. The mouse port is on the left, giving us righties a taste of discrimination. Also, at 12 pounds, 15 pounds with the battery, it's almost as much as a briefcase buster as the portable. When will people understand a terrific transportable computer already exists at half the price of these faux portables, the Apple Mac SE30? I can't really fault Colby. Like any other company trying to compete with Apple in the portable market, Colby has an insurmountable disadvantage in not having license to duplicate the operating system that makes Macintosh's Macintosh. Colby literally has to buy an SE and repackage it into a portable, an approach that would be doomed if Apple ever decided to price the portable reasonably. The bottom line is this. Though the portable is foolishly conceived and seriously overpriced, there's not much in the way of alternatives. Unlike in the hotly competitive MS-DOS world, there is a monopoly in the Macintosh universe. Any dreams of four and a quarter pound Macs with backlit screens costing $2,000 will come true only at Apple's sufferance. I'm sure Apple didn't plan to deliver a computer as disappointing as the Macintosh portable, but complacency might have had something to do with it. As for the pricing, one can only call it gall. As Macintosh users, we are prisoners of Apple Computer, and the portable is our ball and chain. Stephen Levy is a Macworld columnist and the author of The Unicorn's Secret, Murder in the Age of Aquarius, NAL 1989. Epilogue Shortly after the portable disaster, Apple set Japanese electronics giant Sony on the problem of miniaturizing the portable. The result was the compact PowerBook 100, weighing in at just 5 pounds instead of 16, and retailing for $2,300 instead of $7,300 if you opted for a hard disk. Introduced alongside the more powerful, and proportionately more expensive, Model 140 and 170 in October of 1991, the original trio of PowerBooks were a runaway success, bringing in $1 billion of revenue for Apple in their first year on the market. Uh -huh. 